The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I invite you to open up the Word of God with me this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And as we've seen the Lord moving in this account with Nehemiah being moved to pray and then (coughs) him opening a great and effectual door for him to return back to Jerusalem to galvanize the people for the rebuilding of the wall. Now people are on board. The people are excited. The people had a mind to work. They had a vision that the Lord was going to prosper them and we're going to build this wall to protect our families and to protect the city. And as that movement is, uh, that excitement is gaining momentum, it's no surprise that Satan begins to attack and try to detract them from this great work that the Lord was guiding them, moving them to do. Now, if you remember when we were introducing the book of Nehemiah to you, one of the primary themes in this book, and we're going to see this played out especially over the next three chapters in Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6, that where there is a great effectual door opened, we know from the Word of God from 1 Corinthians 16, and the testimony of the Apostle Paul, where there is a great, open, effectual door, there are always many adversaries, okay? And we have to understand that. We have to accept that. When we spent uh, recently a a long period of time in the book of Acts, looking at God's pattern for a, a thriving kingdom, and when we see the kingdom advancing and the kingdom growing, what where was the... What was the consistent result of the Lord growing his kingdom everywhere they went? They showed up, they preached the word, people were baptized, and there was always persecution. Always. Because there's nothing that Satan hates worse than the advancement of the kingdom of God. Okay? So, when he sees that, when he sees people that are united and moving toward a common goal to grow and to rebuild and to strengthen the kingdom, he galvanizes his forces to the best of his ability, which praise the Lord are limited, to try to detract from that great work that the Lord is beginning to do. Okay, And we have to accept that. We have to understand that because it takes great courage And it takes great faith to look at that type of persecution, to look it in the eye and said, as as Nehemiah says uh, in an earlier chapter, look that persecution in the in the eye and say, the God of heaven will prosper us, right? And to have the courage to press through in spite of that persecution. Going back to the book of Acts, if you remember, we went back to Acts chapter four very often, so maybe you remember this. We went there so much. In Acts chapter 4, it was their first taste of persecution. The apostles were thrown in prison, and then the Lord uh, let them out of prison. But when they went back to the church, again, this is the church's first taste of persecution, their prayer was, Lord, behold their threatenings and give us boldness. In spite of that. And I like that language. I I think Nehemiah kind of uses the same thing. Lord, that same kind of language. Lord, you know exactly what's going on, right? You know exactly their devices. You know the schemes that they're planning. And you have the ability to foil and to ruin every scheme of the wickedness that they're trying to undertake. Lord, behold their threatenings. But Lord, give us boldness in the face of persecution, okay? And then they were blessed with boldness. They prayed for boldness. The Lord gave them boldness. And then they were thrown in prison 
again, and then they say there in the conclusion of Acts chapter 5, after they were let out of prison yet again, <clears throat> that they counted themselves worthy. They rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And if we have the happy privilege of suffering shame according to the will of God for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he says in other places in the New Testament, if you suffer for well-doing, praise the Lord. But if you suffer for evil-doing, that's your own fault, right? <laughs> now, not every time we're uncomfortable and not every time bad things happen. Sometimes we're just reaping the consequences of poor decisions. But if you're doing the right thing, you're serving the Lord, and if it's the will of God at that point in your life for you to suffer for the cause of Christ and endure persecution, then you should count that a joy that we could suffer shame for the worthy name of Jesus Christ because his name is worthy to suffer shame for. So that is a consistent pattern all throughout the word of God. We don't have time to give you this. We hope, Lord willing, if we stay on track to, uh, to be able to go to the book of Revelation because those were churches there, those seven churches in, in Asia Minor were enduring the same type of persecution of the galvanizing of Satan's forces to try to uh, deter and to slow down the advancement of the kingdom. And what he tells them there is, is that in spite of this persecution, he's lifting their gaze. He gives them individual encouragement in the seven letters in chapters two and three, but the rest of the book, the rest of the book of Revelation is him giving these big picture figurative visions of the battle. Because this is the battle that's been going on since the Garden of Eden, okay? So we need to understand that. We need to accept that. There has been a, a spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness ever since the Garden of Eden, right? Lucifer... <clears throat> rebelled against God. He desired to be exalted above his station. He desired to be exalted above his calling there as, as the anointed cherub and the, and the angel. And, and he rebelled against God and he took some angels, some fallen angels with him. And ever since then, there has been this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Okay? And it plays it out all throughout Scripture, uh, even in the Old Testament. You see this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness in, in Egypt as the seven plagues are poured out upon the kingdom of darkness. You see the, the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness in the book of Esther when Haman is trying to wipe out God's people. He's trying to kill God's people. You see it played out here in the book of Nehemiah. You see it in the life of Jesus Christ. And you see it in the, in the book of Acts in the early church. You have this consistent theme all throughout Scripture that's played out here in the book of Nehemiah as well of the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Now, the reason why the book of Revelation is so important is because it gives us the correct vision into this battle, right? <laughs> and the battle, and, and the, the theme of this battle is that the kingdom of God will always conquer the kingdom of darkness, right? That's why that book is so important. It gives us a, a concluding theme as children of God after the, the conclusion of the canon of Scripture there in the first century, the final thought that the Lord gives His people in the book of Revelation is that every single generation will be enduring the same type of spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and you need to always be reminded that in Jesus Christ we are more than conquerors over the kingdom of darkness, okay? <clears throat> so, it's very important, and I think this is, the way this, this plays out in the book of Nehemiah is such a uh, great example of the consistent pattern of the devices and the wiles of Satan and the way in which he tries to deceive and make afraid and cause us to not continue in fervency and zeal in what we've been called to do. Okay, A consistent pattern 
I think, is displayed here in the book of Nehemiah. And what we find here, let's just back up. Uh, but we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 4 in just a moment. But in Nehemiah chapter 2, remember, Nehemiah just showed up. And he just announced, he spends three days evaluating the wall. But then he announces to, um, to the people and to the rulers what God had burdened his heart to do. And then immediately when he says that, <clears throat> these agents of Satan, Sambalad and Tobiah, they immediately say, what's the first thing that they say in response to this? Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 19. When Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, <clears throat> they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Now, nobody likes to be made fun of, right? I don't like to be made fun of. I'm not, I know you don't either. If it was up to us, we'd, we'd all fit in, right? We'd all be friends with everybody. But listen, if you're the light of this world, there are people that live in darkness that will not like it, okay? And if you're putting your light under a bushel, you can maybe get away with it. But if you shine as the light of the world in the manner that we're ought to, you will have conflict, okay? And we need to make sure we know how to deal with that conflict. We speak the truth in love, always. But have you ever been in a position where you stood up for a biblical conviction and there was a group of people who ostracized you and looked at you and made fun of you and laughed at you? Have you ever experienced that? Well, if you haven't, there's a good chance you're not letting your light shine as boldly as you should have, okay? Now, none of us like to be ridiculed, but that is just, that's the first line. Because some, especially in America, we've been so coddled to not have to really sacrifice anything substantial for the kingdom. Just us being made fun of and being ostracized a little bit, most of the time we cave for that. I mean, somebody makes fun of you a little bit and you're, you're not able to go to certain events and be included in, in the popular group or the clique or whatever it ends up being. And then just because of that, we immediately fold and just be conformed to the world and being tra instead of being transformed from the world. But that's just the first line of, of attacks that said that. What I, what I want you to think about, um, <clears throat> says in the New Testament, for us to not be ignorant of Satan's devices, okay? And we need to know what Satan's playbook is. We need to know the wiles of the devil. We spent time on the radio, it feels like it's been a couple years ago now, um, going through spiritual warfare and all aspects of that spiritual warfare. And I would encourage you, those are on Macedonia's website if you want to check those out, where we deal with this in, in very in-depth terms. But we have to accept that every single day Satan is coming up, is showing up to fight against the kingdom of God, okay? He is relentless. So if he's showing up to fight every single day, we got to be ready to show up to defend the kingdom of God every single day, okay? The first thing that Satan does is always, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, he always wants to cast doubt to make you question the authenticity of God's word, okay? All the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Yea, hath God said. And then he just edits the word of God just a little bit. Ye shall not surely die. Now, the Lord, or Satan rather, um, is moving, particularly the, uh, the chief characters of the kingdom of darkness here in the book of Nehemiah is Sambalat and Tobiah. And yes, there's a spiritual warfare with angels, fallen angels that are warring against us. Praise God, the angels that encamp round about us are much stronger than any of those fallen angels and they have total authority over them. And there's so many beautiful pictures of that in the word of God. Think about the book of Daniel where he's praying and then the Lord sends an angel to him and to minister to him. And he tells them, I've been warring with the prince of Persia. 
for a few weeks. And I left that battle to come minister to you. And when I'm done, I'm going right back to fight against him. And we have that spiritual warfare in an angelic sense going on around us at all times. And praise the Lord that God's angels encamp round about them that fear him. But Satan also works not through spiritual angelic beings. He works through, through people, right? Now, most of the time he works through the unregenerate. Every now and then he can work through deceived children of God. I mean, think about uh, Jesus told Peter when he said, no, 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 you're not going to go to the cross. No, 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 you're not going to die. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. In that moment, Peter, as a born-again child of God, was being deceived by Satan to try to throw cold water on Jesus' purpose to come into this world, which was to die and to save his people from their sins. In that moment, who's being deceived by Satan? But most of the time, most of the time, the Lord, or excuse me, Satan, Satan works through the unregenerate, those that are not born again. You know, we see that certainly in uh, the book of Acts, that Saul of Tarsus was one of the primary agents of Satan's persecution of the church when he was still in his unregenerate state. Now, now it, it changed when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he was born again, right? But when he was in his unregenerate state, Satan was using him to persecute the church. And that is why Jesus, <clears throat> he says this all throughout his ministry, but he really highlights this in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, light is coming to the world and darkness hates the light, right? That's why at, at that point in his life, Saul of Tarsus was in an unregenerate state and he hated the light and he wanted to stamp out the light. Now, the beauty of light is light always conquers darkness, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, when, when we turn on the light in a room, you don't see a 5, 10, 30-second battle between darkness and light, and then finally, 30 seconds later, light wins out, and finally light shows. No, you turn on light, and light consumes darkness. You know, we've been talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. I always think about it as the kingdom of light. <laughs> Why? Because light just consumes darkness, right? And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of light will always consume darkness. But I want you to notice here how the beginning attacks of Satan through Sambalat and Tobiah is to make them doubt God's commitment and even his word toward them because he had, he had burdened Nehemiah to pray for four months and then he moved in a miraculous way for the king of Persia to give him a written document with the king's seal on it that gave him total authority to go back and rebuild. Now, Satan is the father of lies, right? He seeks to kill, to steal, to destroy, and he's the father of lies. So what's the very first thing that Satan through these men begins to cast doubt on? Notice this. <clears throat> What is this that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Now, this tells you just the way in which the deceitfulness and the wickedness and secret of the way the kingdom of darkness works. They, they tried to kill Nehemiah and kill the people that were working on the wall, but especially Nehemiah. They tried to kill him multiple times. Do you think that things would have worked out well for them if they would have actually killed Nehemiah. He was there with a signed seal of approval of the king to do this work. Do you understand that? The king had given his approval for this work. But the first thing that Satan says is, will you rebel against the king? Well, obviously, that's just lies, isn't it? That's just him trying to make you doubt, trying to make these people and Nehemiah doubt that God has already put God has already put His seal of, of approval on it through the seal of the Persian king, right? You know they're not rebelling against the king. The king has given them full authority to do it. He has they have the full support of the Persian government in doing this. But the very first thing he says is, "Oh, you're starting a rebellion against the king. We're going to go and tell Persia what you're doing, and they're going to 
Well, that's just a lie, isn't it? No, the Persian government fully supported this work. So the first thing he does is he, he's casting doubt on God's approval and really his word, his, his trustworthy commitment that the Lord is going to bless them in this work. And then you see there they ridicule and they laugh at them. They despise them. They, they make them the joke all around town. Okay, and then we see this, the same pattern um, exhibited here in, in Nehemiah. The people, or Nehemiah 4, the people are now committed to the work, the vision that Nehemiah has given them. <clears throat> and they begin to verbally ridicule the people of God again. Now, just to kind of so you understand where we're going. Satan will always, because that's, that's easy, isn't it? To just galvanize some people to make fun of you and laugh at you. That, that's pretty easy for him to galvanize. Next thing, if you, if you ignore that and you say, I'm going to be committed to what the Lord has called me to do, even if, even if I am supposedly a, a laughing stock in this world. Well, Paul said, I'm happy to be a fool for Christ's sake. <laughs> If the world thinks you're a fool for Christ's sake, you're probably doing something right. But if that doesn't work, if that doesn't slow you down, boy, Satan escalates pretty quickly. He threatens their physical life. He says, we're going to kill you. If you don't stop this work, we're going to kill you. Now, did they try to kill him? Yeah, they probably tried to. The Lord foiled that. But do you really think, again, they're making threats, but they're really just idle threats, right? Do you think, what do you think would happen? They would be killed. They would be executed if word got back to Persia that Nehemiah and all these people that I gave full approval for them to rebuild this wall and you killed all them? Sam, who are the first people that are going to get killed? Sambalat and Tobiah is going to get killed, right? They're just, they're just throwing lies and sees what sticks, right? <laughs> That's what the world does. <laughs> it just throws a bunch of lies out there and just sees what sticks. So they're, they're supposedly threatening their life, but were they really going to kill them? It would have been a lot more trouble for them if they did kill them, right? If they killed everyone that was working on this wall and word made, made its way back to the Persian king, they'd be the first person killed. So these are just empty threats. These are just lies. But when somebody says, and they, you know they hate you, if someone told you physically, I'm going to kill you, well, I'm going to take that seriously, right? <laughs> right? I mean, that's going to make me a little nervous. And, and you know what? Outside of really bold faith, it's probably going to affect my actions. Satan knows that. The best way, the best way for him to quench our zeal in the kingdom is to make us afraid. Fear. That's what this is. This is all just fear. Even, even the ridiculing is fear, isn't it? It's a fear of peer pressure. It's a fear of being mocked. It's a fear of being isolated. And then, if you overcome that little bitty fear, well, now let's get down to brass tacks. The fear of me losing my physical life. Satan is just simply trying to make them afraid so that they're, so, they're too terrified to do the work. Okay? And then, they, they just plow right through that, too. <clears throat> They make appropriate provisions. They, half the people work and half the people uh, stand guard. They uh, work on the wall with one hand and they have a sword in the other hand. They set up a, a warning system of trumpets. But then they respond properly and they are not afraid of these empty idle threats for them to be killed. So then what does Satan do? It's chapter five. Satan, external threats and fear hasn't worked. So now, what does the Lord enact, or what does Satan try to stir up? Internal division. Internal division. Now, all of a sudden, the wives are turning on the husbands <laughs> because it's supposed to be harvest time and we got taxes to pay and we got kids to feed and you're out here. What they did is they ended up staying there, that they didn't go home at night. They ended up staying there and sleeping there. And so they were fully committed to this work on a 24-7 basis. And the wives back home didn't like that. 
They didn't come home. And Satan stirs up internal division. Now, internal division is always Satan's first option, right? This is not, internal division is not his backup plan. (laughs) It's always the best option in his mind because a church or God's people or the kingdom that is fractured and in division, I I don't have to worry about galvanizing any external persecution. Why? Because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It falls. Because it, it's weak. It's weak. So, and that's why it's so important. We've talked about this before, of why it's so important for you to make sure that your portion of the wall is, is solidified. Is because Satan is always looking for an avenue to create internal division. Always looking for an avenue. But that doesn't work either. That doesn't work either. And then in Nehemiah chapter 6, they're pretty much done. The wall's built. They, they've got some gates and a few little things to finish up, but the work's not fully complete yet. And then they start trying to deceive Nehemiah to get him to meet with them, and he consistently turns them down. They try to distract him, and their, their intention or their supposed intention was to um, bring Nehemiah uh, to this location and then to kill him. But again, uh, it would have been in their worst interest to kill Nehemiah, right? If word made its way back to the Persian king that this man that I gave my approval to was killed in the work that I approved, right? <clears throat> so, what we find here is ridicule, mocking, verbal ridicule, doubting God's word, and then the threat of physical violence, whether it's an empty threat. In this day, in this situation, it was fairly empty. But boy, in the first century, in the Acts of the Apostles, it wasn't empty, right? It wasn't empty because the government was, for the most part, supportive of the persecution of the church instead of supportive of the defense of the church, right? So in this day, it was kind of an empty threat, but in the Acts of the Apostles, it wasn't an empty threat. And that's why many people gave their life for the cause of Christ. And then the conclusion of this story here in Nehemiah and this battle, this conflict between God's people and the kingdom of darkness, it's the same conclusion of every one of these stories, isn't it? God and the kingdom of God always wins. It always defeats and consumes the devices of Satan in the kingdom of darkness, okay? I want you to see the whole picture of their response, of Nehemiah and the people's response to the ridicule, the threat, the threat of physical violence, even the threat of being killed. You know, if someone makes a threat Many times the Apostle Paul was threatened in the book of Acts, and sometimes he just stood up boldly and said, you know what, I'm going to still preach the gospel. But sometimes he got out of town, right? It's appropriate for us to make good, rational decisions if someone makes a threat. So what did they do? Well, they split time. They put people on guards. They made sure everybody had swords. They made appropriate decisions because of the threat, okay? And there's great spiritual lessons there as they labored on the wall. They had a sword in their hand, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, right? That's how we defend against the kingdom of darkness. So Nehemiah chapter four, let's go ahead and just read the whole chapter. And then we will consider the first portion of this and then save the latter portion of it for um, a later message. Nehemiah chapter four, verse one. And it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, 
And he said, Even that which they built, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof for the people had a mind to work. And it came to pass that when Sambalad and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth. And they conspired all of them together to come and fight against us, against Jerusalem, to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. There is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them, and to slay them, and to cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews, which dwelt by them, came, they said unto us ten times, from all places which ye shall return unto us, they, sh- they will be upon you. Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us and God had brought their counsel to naught that we returned all of us to the wall, everyone unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half held both the spears and the shields and the bows and the habergens and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah and they which built it on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it every one of them with one of his hands wrought in the work and the other one held a weapon for the builders every one had his sword girded by his side and so built it and he that sounded the trumpet was by me And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet? So they had a warning system. If we're attacked over here on this part of the city, there's a warning system to notify people in the other part of the city. If you hear this trumpet, resort ye thither unto us, our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. And half of them held the spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let everyone with his servant lodge within Jerusalem. And in the night they may be a guard to us and labor in the day. So neither I nor my brethren nor my servants nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes saving that everyone put them off for washing. So here the people are galvanized for the work. Sambalad and Tobiah immediately begin mocking and ridicule again here at the beginning of the chapter, right? And you know what's kind of interesting about this is that most likely some of their their criticisms are not totally unfounded. (laughs) He says... uh, What are these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Well, obviously they're not going to be done in one day, right? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? So apparently there were some stones that could have been salvageable, that could have been reusable. I doubt every one of them was. But you know what? Just looking at that naturally, you would say, you know what? That may not be a very reliable stone to use in the rebuilding of this wall. But that's a really reliable stone if the Lord's blessing that stone, right? So 
they look at this and they said, you know, you're going to reuse all these old stones that are broken, that are burned down. And then Tobias says, even if a fox goat went up, he would break down the wall. This, this, this wall is so fragile that if some little bitty animal jumped on it, it would probably crumble. And it probably would. That was probably a true valid criticism. Now, what was their response? What was their response to this ridicule, to this verbal persecution? What was their response to that? Which, which is always our first response when the enemies of God are trying to persecute us. What, what's always our first response? To pray unto God who is our ultimate defender, right? So what's their first response? Verse 4 begins the prayer of Nehemiah, the prayer of the people. Hear, O God. So they're receiving this persecution. They immediately pray unto God. Lord, you've told us you're going to defend us. You've told us you're going to prosper us. Lord, you deal with these enemies. You deal with them. Hear, O God, we are despised. Turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Cover not their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now, these people are certainly committing sin, aren't they? And it's very important that we understand in our own personal confessions and repentance, but also the wicked. David said in, in the Psalms, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, there's a lot of casual effects uh, or ripple effects, rather, of sin. A lot of people that are severely damaged and hurt by sin. But at the end of the day, sin is an offense to the holy God. And let me tell you, he's going to take care of sinners. <laughs> he took care of the sins of all of his elect upon his son on the tree of the cross. And he's going to take care of the sins of all of the wicked in the lake of fire for all of eternity. So that's why we commend vengeance over to the Lord. Right? That's what we're told in the New Testament. Vengeance is not mine to enact. That's why you need to, as they did here, you need to, if you're in physical violence, uh, physical danger, um, you need to take precautions to protect yourself. But our calling in the New Testament is to turn the other cheek. Right? Why? Because we know that the Lord takes vengeance for that. If someone strikes me on the cheek, now first thing I would do is I would cover up and run away, right? That's a, that's a good practice if somebody hit. Don't give them the chance to hit you. That doesn't mean you stay there and literally turn the other cheek and say, all right, punch me on this side now. No, I, I, would, I would encourage you to run away, right? That's, good, that's a good idea. But you don't have the right to then go and plot your revenge against them. What do you do? You say, Lord, behold their iniquity. And Lord, you dump that on top of their head. And you know what? You either dump it, dump it on top of their head now here in time, or you dump it on top of their head for all of eternity. And that's and by the way, this is the consistent pattern. <laughs> Satan, he, you know, if you give him an inch, he will take a foot. But sometimes he gets an inch and he thinks he's got a foot, right? <laughs> he sees this this little bitty opening and he thinks he's, you know, I, I love the story of Esther. Oh, I love it. That Satan, through Haman, thinks he's got him. He thinks he's got him right there. And it gives him just enough of a crack, just enough of a crack to think he's exploiting it. And he, he busts through that crack. And by the end of it, Haman is, is hung from the same gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Mordecai, right? I love that. Satan thinks that he's got this great plan. He thinks he's got this great opening. And what does the Lord do? He always just brings it to naught. He always just conquers it, right? And that's essentially what's happening here. Guys, you think that you're going to stop this work, and Satan thinks he's got this little crack, this little avenue. <laughs> and, and Nehemiah says, Lord, you know exactly what they're up to. You know the full schemes of their heart. You know what, exactly what their designs are. And Lord, you hold them fully accountable for this. Now, in time, Haman was held fully accountable for his sins. But sometimes we can get discouraged because from our perspective, the wicked aren't held fully accountable. But let me tell you, there's going to come a day of judgment. There's going to come a day of judgment where they will be held fully accountable. And you will be standing as a joint heir with Jesus Christ looking at them as that judgment is poured out. And at that day, you will not feel unsatisfied 
for all of those persecutions and wickedness that you had to endure here in time. Okay? So, what Nehemiah says here is, Lord, vengeance is yours. And yes, they're, they're sinning, and yes, they're threatening us, but Lord, I also acknowledge that this sin is ultimately against you, and you are going to deal with the offense of this sin. And again, many times the Lord overrules and conquers, and he deals with that offense here in time, but just in case you're ever deferred and, and think that the wicked are getting away with things, oh, just wait till Jesus comes back the second time. They're not getting away with anything. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot better for us to be a little bit uncomfortable in serving God in righteousness' sake in the kingdom of God here in time than for us to have the wrath of God poured out on us for all of eternity. Right? <clears throat> Cover not their sin. <laughs> Do not, you know, it, it's okay to pray that. David prayed those kind of prayers in the Psalms, didn't he? Those imprecatory Psalms. Lord, you know their sin. And as much as in me is, you know, we want to show mercy to people. But, Lord, also hold them fully accountable for their sin. And that's okay to pray that way. Lord, hold them fully accountable for their sin. But you know what? In spite of that, in spite of these verbal ridicules, that first little push, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together under the half. They are almost half done on the half thereof. Why? For the people had a mind to work. They ignored, they pressed through this verbal ridicule and these, and these, these threats. But then Satan dialed it up a little bit more, right? It's not just, oh, we're making fun of you. Oh, we're ridiculing you. Satan said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And that would make anybody afraid, wouldn't it? And they made appropriate precautions. They, uh, they set people on guard. Everybody had a sword on their hand. They set up this, this trumpet notification system. Those were good practical responses to a threat of somebody killing you. But notice how quickly, notice how quickly just this, in my opinion, a, somewhat of a fairly empty threat to kill you. Look how quickly it diminished and really just sapped the zeal of these people. Look how quickly this happened. Verse 10, And Judah said, now, they threatened them. Let's back to verse 9 first. They threatened them and they said, we're going to kill you. And they responded properly. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God. Right? You threatened us, we're going to petition God. But then, Judah said, verse 10, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. Now all of a sudden they're getting weary. Why are they getting weary? Because now all of a sudden their nerves are torn up because they're afraid, right? Well, doesn't, doesn't fear sap your physical energy? <laughs> so the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. There is much rubbish. And now notice the contrast between verse 6. The people had a mind to work and we built the wall. But now in verse 10, somebody threatened their physical life and they say, we are not able to build the wall. We can't do it. We're quitting. We're throwing in the towel. We had a good run. We're about half done. But somebody threatened my physical life, so I've got to quit. You know, it makes me think about these, these cop shows where, you know, somebody's going to testify against the mob or a gang or something, and then they threaten them, and they're like, no, 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 I'm not going to testify, right? And that works. You want to know why, you want to know why gang people do that, why the mob does that? Because it works, right? People get afraid. And when they get afraid, they just, they just clam up, and they said, I'm just not going to do anything. Well, what's always humorous about those things is when people do that, and obviously most of them are, it happens in real life, but most of the time it's a fictionalized show, is like you watch that, and you're like, you do realize, right, they're probably still going to kill you. Like, you can change your mind at any time. <laughs> if, they, if they threaten your life and they intend to kill you now, they're probably going to go ahead and kill you anyway. Right? So therefore, you might as well just do the right thing. You know, you're not going to absolve their desire to have you silenced. Right? And the same is true here. If you stop this work, do, are, is Sam Blatt and Tobiah going to be your best friends going forward? No, they're still going to hate you. Right? They're still going to try to tear you down in every circumstance. So you stopping the work out of fear is not solving anything. Now, 
Nehemiah was guided by the Lord to make, again, wise decisions to respond to this threat. But (laughs) morale and momentum and excitement and zeal, boy, it's a fragile thing, isn't it? Look how quickly it was vanquished just by an idle, empty threat. Now, thankfully, they, they pressed through these threats. They pressed through the internal division that we see in the next chapter. They pressed through these final deceptions and distractions that Satan tried to use to prevent Nehemiah from finishing the work. And then we know the capstone of this, again, the kingdom of God always conquers the kingdom of kingdom of light always conquers the kingdom of darkness is that they finish this work in 52 days right in spite of all of these obstacles now i want to spend the rest of our time in the book of revelation book of revelation and in the story of nehemiah we have important spiritual lessons that are being taught through this through the physical account the physical historical account of what happened. One of the most important of those, we'll hopefully highlight that more specifically in our next message, is that their response to the threats of Satan was to labor with a sword by their side at all times. And obviously, what's our greatest defense against the wiles and the attacks of Satan? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? So our defense is always the Word of God to defend against the wiles of Satan. But Here in the book of Revelation, we have the original audience of these members of the seven churches of Asia that are right in the thick of this battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, okay? And they're encountering persecution. They, the church in Pergamos has already had a martyr. The church at Smyrna is expecting to have martyrs. So they are preparing in their own mind to be fully committed to the work of the kingdom, even if it costs me my natural life, okay? And obviously, the reason why Satan works through principalities and powers and rulers of darkness uh, and spiritual wickedness in high places, the reason why he does that is because when those governmental authorities are being controlled by Satan, it's terrifying to think that there could be a governor that could have me executed at any time, right? That's a fear, a real fear, that will quench my zeal in the kingdom, right? And that's a, that's a valid point. That's a valid fear, okay? And that is the environment of these churches, is that there were people in positions of authority, principalities of powers, spiritual wickedness in high places, that... Yes, they were in the, every child of God has been in the thick of the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, but they were having to reconcile in their mind that we are committed to the death for this kingdom. Okay? So, as you study the book of Revelation, and I hope you do, by the way, don't be afraid of the book of Revelation, you always need to look at it from the vantage point of how does this picture, these figurative pictures that are given, how does that encourage these persecuted, beleaguered saints that are kind of wondering, am I going to give my life for the kingdom? Now, are there historical events that are highlighted in in figurative ways? Absolutely there is, okay? But essentially, the story of the book of Revelation is it tells the exact same story of the kingdom of God from the first coming of Jesus Christ to the second coming of Jesus Christ through multiple different vantage points and perspectives, okay? But if there is a historical event that's described in here that's talking about World War II, there may be. I want you to ask, I want to ask you, people that always are just trying to plumb the book of Revelation to match it up with historical events, if one of these visions is describing the events of World War II, what effect does that have on a first century member of the church at Smyrna that's about to give his life for the cause of Christ? The answer is nothing, right? You figuring out the Rubik's Cube is not the point, (laughs) okay? 
this is telling you that you are part of a legacy of persecution. You are part of a legacy of this battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And this battle will go on until the second coming of Jesus. You are not alone. There is no new thing under the sun. And the persecution that you are enduring, God's people have endured this, this persecution all the way back to the Garden of Eden, especially here in the first century. So you are part of a legacy of overcoming persecution. Okay? So, he's telling them, yes, you are in a strait betwixt two, right? But I'm encouraging you to overcome, to overcome, that your faith would not be quenched, that you would overcome. And, and in every single one of these seven letters to the churches of, of Asia, he gives a promise to him that overcomes. And, and that's important. It doesn't say today that overcome. We, we highlight that a lot in the letter to Laodicea, that the church was lukewarm. And if any man, if any individual person will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Okay? But these promises to overcome, if the whole church is overcoming, that's fantastic. Okay? But the promises are to you individually. And you know what? The nature of this struggle is that our nature wants to let fear conquer faith, okay? The question is, is our faith going to overcome or is our faith going to be overthrown? There were people in 2 Timothy chapter 2, devoted children of God, born-again children of God that rejoiced in the truth. They were deceived by the false teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus, and their faith was overthrown. Their, their faith was overthrown. Now, the contrast to that is he's giving these promises to those whose faith overcomes the kingdom of darkness, overcompresses through the persecution with their eyes on the pride. Now, we don't have time to really highlight these the way that I, that I want to. I really wanted to read all seven of them. Um, and so every one of these letters to the individual churches, there is a promise to him that overcometh. Okay? I want to highlight a few of them. Um, now, obviously, this language is very, is very figurative, and the language is very specific to those individual churches. Uh, beautiful study of the seven churches of Asia, of geography and background. That he uses specific language for each church that are specific to that church. Okay, and we don't have time to, to really dig into that. But I want to highlight a few of these. The promises to notice him, and obviously her, that overcomes. But I want you to understand, discipleship is about personal devotion. It's about your individual portion of the wall. It's, it's about personal devotion. And these are the promises to you if you overcome. And if you overcome, well, you're going to set a great example for other people to follow and encourage their zeal. Revelation chapter 2, this is to the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> He that hath the ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of our God. Now, I want you to think about these promises. There is there's not going to be some people that are in the clique of eating in the paradise of the tree of life, of the paradise of God in heaven. And there's some people who let fear conquer themselves, and they deny Jesus before they passed away and they're going to have to not there's not a VIP section in heaven right there's no rewards in heaven there's not there's not the faithful saints get get the inner the inner room access to Jesus and then the people who live like Lot and and saw their whole life they they have to live down in the uh, in the shacks in heaven no no we we receive the fullness of the presence of Jesus so don't you think about this most of these promises are not talking about heaven they're not talking about heaven. They're talking about the blessings of the kingdom of God right here and right now. Okay? So when he's talking about eating of the tree of life, he's not talking about you're going to get a, a, a portion of the tree of life in heaven and other people aren't going to get it. No, he's talking about you're going to have intimate, close, powerful fellowship with Jesus Christ who is the tree of life right here and right now in the kingdom of God when you overcome. Now, 
You know, I just think about, I think about the Apostle Paul. I think when he was in prison, he was eating of the tree of life in prison, right? He was, he was overcoming, and he was eating of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of our God. He was eating of that tree of life in the Mamertine prison in, in Rome. Why? Because, boy, he was overcoming, wasn't he? He was committed to the cause. Okay, now Smyrna, he's telling them, listen, guys, yes, you're going to be tried. He's encouraging them in verse 10 to be faithful unto death. Some of you are going to be martyred. Some of you may be in heaven by the end of the week, by the end of the month. Okay? But be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Also, don't be discouraged. Those people who slay you, in verse 11, he that overcometh shall not be hurt in the second death. Now, it may hurt for a minute in the first death, but boy, praise God, we're not part of that second death and the judgment of God upon the wicked. Okay? Uh, Pergamus had already had a martyr, and there was, there was more coming. Okay? So, we don't have time to read all of those, but I want to skip to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. And here you have, again, this, this battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And, and you have this figurative picture of, of the dragon who, in this account, actually is working through Herod in trying to kill the baby Jesus Christ. But God protects. You know, Satan tries to kill the baby Jesus Christ. And what is... And, and obviously many babies are, are killed as a result of that, unfortunately. But what does the Lord do? He protects the child. So you have Satan working through these men to try to destroy Jesus Christ. But how do we overcome? Okay? How do we overcome Satan and the kingdom of darkness? Revelation chapter 12 and in verse 11. They overcame him, overcame the dragon, overcame Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and boy, this was really applicable to these people here in, in Asia Minor, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They overcame him how? When Satan comes to attack us and make us doubt the promise and the provision and the protection of God, you want to know what you do? You tell him, you remember the cross where he crushed your head with his heel, and he's going to cast the rest of that snake into the lake of fire at his second coming. You tell him about the first time his head was crushed, and then you go to the book of Revelation and read to him. He knows it. He knows the book of Revelation better than anybody. Which, by the way, personally, I kind of think that's why Satan has tried to muddy the water so much where people don't read it. Right? Because what is the one portion of scripture that tells consistently about his defeat and his demise and him being cast in the lake of fire. Well, he's muddied the waters enough where people don't ever read it because they're afraid of it. Okay? But what this, what this is encouraging these persecuted, beleaguered Christians is reminding them that the kingdom of light will always conquer the kingdom of darkness. Always. Why? <laughs> because of the power of our king who is the light of the world. And we want to do our best to serve him faithfully, but, boy, it, it's hard to not let fear consume our actions, isn't it? Boy, that's a continual struggle, isn't it? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Lord, I'm fearful. Please help my fear, right? And, but we want to follow the pattern of Nehemiah, follow the pattern of that early church there in Acts chapter 4. Behold their threatenings. Lord, you know, you know, you know all their devices and you bring them all to naught. You foil them. And that's exactly what we see as the overcoming faith of these disciples here in the book of Nehemiah. And look what the Lord did in, in this mighty work. But you understand why Satan wanted to tear down this work, doesn't he? Is there anything that's more glorifying than them accomplishing this impossible task in 52 days, right? Is there anything more glorifying to God than this powerful work that he was leading them to do? Well, Satan tried to, tried to foil it every turn. But Satan's powers, Satan's influence is limited. And it's nothing in light of the sovereignty of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. 
For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.